Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 27th, 2020 episode, episode 52. If you are a long-time listener, you'll know that I took a one-week break and I'm happy to be back and thanks again for tuning in and not forgetting about me over the week and I also appreciate you being patient and allowing me to take my break. And I think um, before I go into my learnings, I think I just want to do a bit of a reflection. Maybe it's something I probably would kind of more share in detail in my weekly newsletter. So if you are not subscribed to it, definitely go subscribe at omdventures.com. That's where I kind of talk more about what I do every week in further detail because the podcasts are more so focused purely on the learnings. Not that I don't talk about learnings in the newsletter, but I'd say they're much more about me in terms of my introspective nature of what I do, etc. Um, and it's more so just me ranting more so. Uh, not that I don't rant on the podcast, I tend to do that, but you know, that gives the, the uh, flavor, right? And so I think going forward, I'll probably try to schedule in these kinds of weekly breaks. Um, I think it's pretty good for me to just kind of step back, spend some time thinking, um, doing more longer form uh, journals that I got to do over the week and also tried really hard to not to not do anything. I, I was ra- it was rather difficult, um, definitely played by a lot of guilt and feelings of, uh, I think I have a lot of things, things to do, but I think one of the things I am quite addicted to is television um, or just TV shows in general. It's, you know, I don't do, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't, you know, do drugs, but one of the addictions I suffer from is that once I watch a TV show, I I can go pretty long. Um, yeah, I think easily I've gone 18 hours nonstop just watching TV shows. So, yeah, it's one of those dangerous things for me. Uh, if I go down the rabbit holes, I try to also avoid TV as much as I can. <laughs> but um, I, I'd say this week was one of those days where it was kind of an opportunity to just do that and not do anything. And sometimes it actually helps clear my mind in, in that case as well. And... It's something I'm experimenting with going forward, but I think I might consider just having more of these learning medley style podcasts. It's I, it's not really current news. Um, it's not like, for example, you know, the uh, the daily podcast by the New York Times or um, the Journal by Wall Street Journal or, you know, the, the tech meme podcast. Like, these are all daily podcasts that I listen to just to become more current on what's going on in the world. And I have other people curate that for me, but I think... I'm, I guess, in one way curating various learnings that I find fascinating um, with this constant theme of interesting people, um, this constant theme of investing in people, and just learning things that I believe would be applicable in that uh, particular subject. So what I'm trying to say, actually, is that I think I'll try to maybe incorporate more of these medley, learning medley uh, episodes than before. I think I usually do maybe one a week, but more so it might be more like two to three a week um, because that might actually give me more time to 
uh, spend deep, do some more deeper work in my research um, so I can maybe look at a company for a little longer, um, flush out an idea a little longer. Um, or if it's like a book review, I can actually go in deeper into the longer books that I might have written, uh, read about then I can think about a little more. So it just gives me more time. And I think that's something I did miss, uh, just the ability to do deep work. That's something I did reflect on, um, just trying to find a balance that way. Because I do enjoy the daily nature of this podcast. I do enjoy what this podcast makes me do. I think for me, it's the idea is that it keeps me really honest because it forces me to continually learn something new, at least. Um, at least listen to at least one new podcast episode to learn from someone. And for example, today, I think uh, because my at-home training sessions tend to be about two to three hours, um, that gives me plenty of time to go through at least three podcast episodes. And today was no exception. I think I went through about maybe five or six different podcasts and ended up kind of pulling out two that I want to share, as well as some random thoughts, actually. Um, it's not really in the title, but it's part of the episode notes. I actually spent a good chunk of the morning talking to uh, some my uh, more mathematically inclined friend, um, trying to brush upon my old statistics knowledge because I was pretty poor at stats. And I had a thought on just trying to identify businesses, and I was trying to get familiar with, you know, the left, the positive, negative skews, the exponential growth, power laws, and all that stuff, and just needed to brush up on that. And that kind of brought on these random thoughts I wanted to share. So I'll kind of start with that, actually. Um, oh, and before I go into today's learnings, so there's three parts. It's the random thoughts, and then it's um, a theme on luck and success from two particular podcast interviews by with uh, Maria Konnikova and David Epstein. But before I go into that, I just want to thank Mr. Bass. I'm not going to name your first name just for privacy purposes, but I appreciate the email uh, you sent me to support me and push me along to continue doing the podcast, um, especially when I was, uh, I think I might have mentioned the last episode before I went on my break, that yeah, this was challenging and I wanted to kind of evaluate it. So I appreciate that. And yeah, it's, it's just awesome to hear from a listener, just to, let, just to remind me that there's someone out there that's actually listening to what I'm saying. So it's definitely been a big um, boost as well. So I appreciate that once again. So now going into the learnings. Um, so that's for random thoughts. So this particular idea definitely was inspired by um, a book I'm reading right now. It's called The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. If I don't see if you're in any kind of financial circle, you will know Taleb's work. Um, I'd say I've read uh, his two other books, Anti-Fragile and Fooled by Randomness. And Anti-Fragile, is, I think, is definitely an amazing book. Um, it's something I hope to do a book note on in the near future. It's just the amount of notes I have in there are pretty dense, so it's going to take me some time, so that might be one of the bigger projects I take on. But um, this book already is something that I've very much enjoyed, but it takes me a very long time to go through each page because I have to continue to try to understand what he's implying in his very sarcastic tone of writing. But that got me down this different chain of thought, um, not necessarily related, somewhat related to black swans, but I was thinking about certain kinds of businesses. So we know uh, bank company, companies like banks are sometimes considered fragile in nature, um, given how 
for banks, you know, they issue out loans. And so they're a very kind of asset heavy business. And it reminded me of how people also view insurance companies as well, where like, for example, if you look at an insurance company, the way you make money is that you don't want disasters to happen and people will pay you in case shit happens. So it's, it's one of those things where people really never want to use insurance, but they just have it for peace of mind. But then when they actually have to use it and you know they get quote-unquote value out of it, then the insurance company uh, is in kind of a load of hurt as well. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a business where you're just really praying nothing bad actually happens, which is kind of sim- with similar for a bank uh, in the very traditional kind of lending business where you earn interest and you just really don't want people to default on their loans which can happen and that's kind of the worst case scenario where i don't know maybe the small business goes bankrupt maybe the individual has to you know declare bankruptcy on their own um or you know they default on the loan just all that kind of stuff um and so the downside in relative aspect is pretty catastrophic for like insurance as well as for banks uh, and for insurances, obviously, there's the more lesser kind like PNC, property and casualty insurance. And then it's pretty big, I'd say, on the reinsurer side, the guys who actually reinsure the insurance companies. Those, there's definitely, I'd, I'd say, uh, possibly greater risk in that business line, um, which is probably why they make much lower margins as well, at least on an average industry base. But so the, the thought that came around there. Um, this is not a fully flushed out thought, but it's something I've been thinking about all morning. So I thought my, might as well share it and use this as a possible, uh, I guess, platform to just think about it and, you know, give you a food for thought on what I've been thinking about. <laughs> and it also helps me, I guess, flush out my idea just by having to talk about it and explain it to you so that you can understand it. So the thought was, well, these are businesses that I don't know what you would call them. I initially thought they might be called negative skew businesses, but as I learned about skewness, that might not be properly uh, applicable. But these are businesses where the the steady state is kind of like, or rather, the upside is that it it's a very predictable steady state business. You know, you're gonna get your insurance premium payments, you're gonna get um, your interest payments. So. These are things that you try to, you can probably forecast out with relative certainty um, because these are more or less contractual in many natures. And, but there's all this quote unquote now, like the negative black swan event that's possible. You just can't know when a disaster might happen. You can't know when a default might happen, right? It just happens. You can never really predict it. But based on historic outcome, you just predict that, oh yeah, it, we will probably go steady state going forward because, well, they've paid their premiums, they've paid their interest payments, it'll probably continue to happen, right? And so these are businesses where you'd think that the upside is relatively limited. Like that's that's actually what I felt when I was reading the Dear Shareholder book um, and they cover various great C, uh, management and CEO teams who run insurance companies, you know, very famous is like Markel, for example, uh, Fairfax with um, Prem Watsa, Tom Gaynor at Markel. Um, and these businesses, in my mind, if you don't really consider the flexibility managers have with running their the float of an insurance company, just like how kind of Buffett's been able to use his float money and run a very amazing um, equity portfolio, 
if you look at just like the business itself, though, for like traditional insurance or traditional banks, the upside for me just looks like a it's a business that seems quite limited, right? It's not like um, a typical software business where you you have this massive compounding effect, this huge network effect that's available um, for the business to have this huge exponential growth. Like you just don't you just won't see that I think in an insurance company or a bank, and I think the business model just doesn't support that. However, you you face all these possible risks um, if risk is mismanaged, if capital is mismanaged. And so I think a common argument people make is that for banks, banks are the situations where um, they're not really differentiating themselves and their products and in some ways are kind of commodities against each other in the service they provide. Same for insurance companies. So because in many ways, I think the low price person wins, they end up kind of going to a bit of a price war sometimes. But it's kind of a commodity service. And in that case, I guess that's where the management shines and the management, I think it's actually the downside protection. So for example, um, you know, Geico being part of Berkshire Hathaway and, you know, you, you have a G chain that runs Geico and you have Buffett at the top. They kind of are the buffer. You just kind of, you just know that capital is not going to be mismanaged. They're not going to take unnecessary risks with the uh, float portfolio. Uh, same with Fairfax. You know, you just, expect Prem Watta to do the right thing. Now he's made some mistakes in his investment portfolio, but still you just have faith in the management being the backstop compared to, you know, other insurance companies where you might have management or, you know, other banks where, you know, you would have management who might get greedy and, you know, do what happened in 08 with AIG blowing up, uh, Lehman and Bear Stearns collapsing and going bankrupt and, you know, all these other banks needing bailouts. And, the management really just they they were not good stewards they were not the good um they didn't provide the downside protection you just want from great management and so in one case it made me think about well okay so these businesses if i look at the relationship between business model and the management these are businesses where the business model will kind of give you this steady state um, that you just kind of expect with some kind of consistency and what management provides is not really any upside potential but more so a protection on the downside is kind of a layer of margin of safety to look at. Whereas if you look at another business, so if we looked at, for example, um, I don't, and this is where I don't know if this is a very accurate analogy, but if I were to think about like a software company, uh, the traditional, I'd say, uh, probability of a software company is that if, for a very long time, they're not going to do well. Um, they're not going to really generate much profit. In many ways, you know, most software companies will fail pretty quickly. Uh, the barrier to entry is extremely low compared to starting a financial mm-hmm. company like an insurance company or a bank. Like because the barrier to entry is so high, once you get there and once you become one, um, you're kind of gonna be guaranteed this steady state. Whereas for software, the barrier to entry is so low um, that once many companies can get in, and that also creates this really hyper competitive environment where many will fail, um, but if you become like the few who can do extremely well, then you have this massive exponential growth. And this is one where I'm thinking, well, in one way, it's the business model could pro- probably be the one that provides the, not so much a downside protection, but that's kind of the base baseline. And then the management is that could actually be the differentiator um, that provides the upside potential. Because if we look at it, software as a business model itself like if you look at for example 
nowadays, most companies are SaaS, right? They're SaaS software as a service. They have a subscription element. Not many actually do license-based um, services anymore. So if we look at that, you the business model is relatively similar. You know, you're going to have reten- pretty high retention if it's good. You're going to... If the product's good, you're going to have um, pretty recurring revenue. And this is obviously all assuming that the software product itself is, let's say it just kind of fits the traditional uh, SaaS product that everybody loves, like an ERP system or some kind of um, you know e-commerce platform, right, that allows the business to actually function. So many companies will want to compete there, but many will die. But the ones that actually do really well, the business model isn't necessarily that different right? Um, it's still a subscription service. But I think where the differentiator comes in is probably in how the management executes everything. And obviously, there's luck involved in every part of the business scenario. But I think this is where management actually acts as the upside potential. Um, whereas the business model provides kind of the downside where downside cap where you expect the business to do a certain way, um, as as long as you know, it kind of goes past that certain point of like being able to grow. Like once you've had product market fit and you can actually hit that kind of growth stage, then the business model itself can provide us a sense of downside protection that way. That's just how I've been thinking about like this kind of inverse relationship between these two types of businesses. And in one way, then um, it, it, it was reminding me a little of, I think, um, Asmath uh, Damodaran, the valuation professor at Stern, he publishes like an annual, I think, report that looks at all the various industries and tries to rank which industries tend to um, provide the most kind of return to shareholders, like in the, like the public stock market. And it's a presentation that, uh, or it's a report that Terry Smith from Fundsmith uses. And Terry and Fundsmith is one of the funds I like to follow, and I read all their annual reports, annual letters. And they also make that argument too, where it's a, a focus of, you know, they'll focus on the industries that have, you know, very high returning uh, businesses. And they tend to be in like, you know, technology, consumer service, um, info, like advertising agencies, information technology, that kind, those kinds of industries, these like business service kinds of industries. And it's my thought that, well, okay, yeah, like, Buffett also talks about how, you know, the business's reputation will surpass that of management um, and how, yeah, like if you want to have a business where even an idiot can run it and it'll be fine. And in one ways, that's picking a business where the model itself protects, has like a downside protection and the management provides an upside. So if that is the case, then businesses like banks or insurance companies don't necessarily fit that. But uh, like an advertising agency or a software business um, or like, you know, some something like a toll road, for example. And these are kind of like a toll road would be like MasterCard is a toll road kind of business uh, because everybody has to pay a fee to do business, right? And these kinds of businesses already provide a level of downside protection just in the business model itself. And then the management, if you have an amazing manager, can actually exponentially just... Uh, reinvest the cash flow and create this massive growth opportunities on top of the actual business itself. So it's it's a way of thinking about using the industry as a backdrop to look at where you want to fish and thinking deeper about, um, like at least for me, 
it's a way to find companies where management can actually make a bigger difference um, on the upside than so much protecting the downside and just letting the business model be more the margin of safety there and looking at management to be like the upside provider. So that's the stuff I've been thinking about. It's nothing new. Um, I think much of the idea has just been floating around everywhere. And I, I, I swear I've heard about these ideas in different bits and pieces from somebody else. Um, but it's something I've been noodling on further. And it's for me, it's looking at it in the lens of constantly finding companies with excellent management, but keeping in mind that I want to be in a business model where an amazing manager will actually be able to exponentially provide up exponential upside for the business, not so much limit shit from happening and blowing up a business, if you know what I mean. So that, that's a random thought um, for the day. And I'll kind of quickly go over two particular podcast episodes. So the first one, this one, um, it's a, it was a pretty short interview. It was, it was at the Odd Lots podcast odd lots podcast it's a bloomberg podcast um and it's titled how to become a world-class poker player and they interviewed maria maria konnikova um she is a poker player but um she didn't start out playing as a professional poker player she actually started out i believe as a mix like she has a fascinating career which is kind of why i was interested in the podcast to begin with because she i think graduated from psychology became like a journalist started uh was writing and doing like doing tv production and then she got her phd in psychology and then went you know continued writing and became a professional poker player just to as part of creating a book um and then she ended up playing poker full-time i think in total she earned in an excess of more than three hundred thousand dollars um just from playing poker and and i've heard i i remember listening to a few of her interviews in the past and i did look up her background before but I think in this particular sense, um, I think it's just because I personally am in a place in my career where I find journalism and writing and, you know, uh, creating content and even the thought of like a PhD much more intriguing personally. I think that's why I kind of gravitated more towards this interview particularly because I was more fascinated by her. And I also play poker quite frequently um nowadays it's online on using zoom calls but i used to play uh pre-covid i play at least one or two games a week with uh, a group of poker poker friends i have and i was i generally now play maybe once a week now uh through zoom calls so poker has become a bigger part of my life i'd say um it's they're not like high stakes games but they're definitely they're not immaterial in mon- in money let's say and it's something I, I continuously think about improving on from time to time. And so this also was a fascinating, I think, conversation is kind of gave, giving a quick look into her progression and how she thinks about her own edge as a psychologist as well. And so I think the few things I thought fascinating, um, one was just kind of how she, why she prefer, prefers live events over online events. And I interviewed a professional poker player in my previous podcast, Accounted For, and yeah, the overwhelming, what I learned from there was that to, before you get to ever play live tournaments, you have to play a ton of online tournaments. And some people never play live. They just play only online. And Maria talks about how uh, a lot of online players, there are definitely more people who are, um, I guess, quantitatively inclined, like more left-brained, I believe. Um, it's much more mathematical. 
And they also use a lot of software that actually spits out data on your past kind of moves and analysis on it. And it's all an idea of trying to gain more certainty based on past historic data. (laughs) For me, this reminded me of long-term capital management and all the people who try to use past data uh, as quants to try to predict the future and end up all blowing up. (laughs) So I'm always quite skeptical of that. Anytime someone tries to use past data um, to create a quantitative strategy, I'm always very uh, wary of it because I just don't think history really tells us what's going to ever happen in the future. We pull lessons from it, but we can never, I think, um, use that data there to signify what's going to happen. Although there's a different side of arguments where you use base rates, but I think it's kind of a case-by-case basis that way. Um, Base rates also give you an idea of um, a band, I think, of what the outcomes could be, but you can never really gain any certainty. Uh, And I think that's where the dangers are. But anyhow, it was cool hearing Maria talk about how like a lot of online players actually just use a ton of these softwares and they're like analyzing your every move. And so that definitely made me think about how, yeah, I'm definitely out of my league if I ever try to play online tournaments. Um, For me, I love the kind of whole people aspect of playing live poker. And it was cool to hear though Maria talk about how like she felt like she had an edge playing live poker because she always paid attention more to the people, not so much the mathematics of it all. So that kind of gives me hope personally, uh, because I do want to play in uh, large scale tournaments in the future. Maybe, you know, once I have enough of a bankroll, I'll start doing that with, with my uh, poker crew and also when I get better too. But I think another thing that was also fascinating was how she spoke. I think uh, she cites a research where, it said 12% of winning hands actually win. So, you know, you might actually have the winning hand, but you only end up winning 12% of the time, which actually shows how this kind of disparity, um, I I think actually dictate, it just shows to you how the the sport of poker requires so much skill because it doesn't really, having the winning hand alone isn't good enough you actually have to make it there to actually hold down the pot and yeah it's one of those really tricky things like there's so much i think psychology involved like and i think another cool part that she talks about is just kind of understanding or learning and figuring out who you are uh, like the type of poker player you are like your style and this i think is a continuous theme i'm constantly trying to work on as well in terms of becoming the kind of investor that fit uh, I want to be like finding my style really because I think everyone had I think they will this I think is a good lead up to the next podcast I, I'll talk about but uh, I think there's enough psychological research that talks about how most of our identities and personalities are kind of somewhat finalized by the time uh, we hit our late 20s and a lot of the the experiences we have from our eight from 18 to our late 20s formulates a lot of that and so I think as I, you know, I'm in my late 20s now and it makes me think more about really analyzing my style. Um, It started with analyzing my style as an athlete in terms of how I respond to stimulus um, and stimuli in terms of the various stressors in powerlifting training, like what kind of um, different exercises and techniques help generate further strength and development for me because I'm a much different athlete from other people. But that's transcended into how I invest. Um, And so my investing journals have been pretty helpful with that, but also I'm constantly figuring that out. But even for poker, um, as Maria talks about, like everyone has their own style. And it also made me kind of reflect on my kind of style as like in terms of, you know, am I an aggressive player? Am I a reactive player? 
I'm a hyper, you know, conservative player. And I'd say like, I'm definitely more, I'm not a hyper aggressive player. Like I've played with some people who are extremely hyper aggressive and like the balls they have to make the kind of calls and bets they do is insane. Um, and some are very wild players. I'd say I, I don't know. I, I want to say I'm an unpredictable player, but in some ways I'm not because my betting ranges are very kind of set, but I would say I tend to be a pretty aggressive player. Like I bet pretty often, I bet pretty heavily and I'm constantly pushing. Um, and I think I can learn to push even harder. I think I back off um, even when I have the winning hand. Um, and so that that for me was a pretty interesting stat to know that only 12% of winning hands actually win because yeah, I've been on the other end of that <laughs> where I've, you know, I've been on the 88% where uh i have i know i have the winning i fi- I figured after that i had the winning hand i'm like wow shit i can't believe i uh folded or you know i gave in to a more to an, a more aggressive player so i think that was pretty fascinating um overall i was just much more fascinated just in maria's career uh in terms of just how i could emulate it going forward it's just for me it's one more data point to consider um in how i design my own career and thinking more about the style that i want to have in terms of i think I don't, don't want to criticize, but I didn't enjoy the interview style so much of the Odd Lots podcast. I've I've been giving them more of a shot. I've been I think I've listened to about three or four different episodes, and I don't know. It's just something about the interview style just doesn't really resonate much with me. So if you want to learn more about Maria, I think there's other other podcasts about her. Um, so that might be pretty good. But yeah, so that's on that podcast. And before as we hit close to the thirty minute mark, and I kind of ranted a bit here. Uh, it's a shame because this next podcast is the most most interesting one. But uh, who knows? Maybe I'll go over time. So this is the invest. It's from the Invest Like the Best podcast. It's an old episode uh, with the David Epstein. Uh, he's the author of Range, um, and he's I think more well known for uh, the previous book he had called The Sports Gene. And he's a sports science writer for Sports Illustrated. And this was the third time I listened to this particular podcast episode. And I think each time I pull out something new, um, my previous learnings newsletters had more learnings from uh, this specific episode. But this time around, um, I definitely, I think, pulled out some new tidbits. The big, uh, f- the first one is on the Dark Horse Project uh, and Paul Graham's commencement speech, which he wrote in his essays, uh, but he never actually gave. So I'd listened, I'd actually read Paul Graham's commencement speech essay before, um, but I've never, I don't remember actually hearing about the Dark Horse Project, which was a project that, it's a project I think that still goes on in Harvard. And both actually touch upon a very similar similar theme of the importance of people to continuously um, focus on not building a map that maps out exactly what they, sh- they should do for the next 20 years of their lives, but to really focus on the present. Um, and Paul Graham says, you know, in computer science, this is called premature optimization. And the Dark Horse Project, which examines a lot of people who have kind of fulfilling careers and figuring out, you know, how were they able to achieve this? And the people that the Dark Horse Project um, looks at, you know, one of the famous people is like Josh Waitzkin, um, if you're not familiar with him. He is a very fascinating chess prodigy person who uh, went to become like a world champion in martial arts and um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And 
he like coaches all these hedge fund managers and he's practically someone I idolized personally. Um, and I've, I think I reviewed his book on my website as well. So he's, uh, he's a pretty big deal for me. So the fact that he was featured in the Dark Horse project makes it legitimate in my eyes. And the whole project looks at all these people who seem to be odd in their careers. And the result or kind of conclusion is that, well, to actually have a fulfilling career, you you will probably, it will be normal to have a career journey slash trajectory that, that should look odd because that means you've explored and built out a range of experiences that give you so much feedback and data so that you actually have an idea to know what you like and what you dislike, which plays into the idea of how um, our kind of early 20s to our late 20s is kind of the period where we end up kind of solidifying who we are. And really, the requirement, what would help that process, or in, in one way, some, what, would be, what would be required for that process to be quite fruitful is to continuously seek out different experiences, to constantly iterate and iterate so that you can collect different kinds of data, right? You want more feedback and you want more valuable feedback. So, you know, you probably want to take on high-risk jobs. And that's kind of what David talks about deeper in his book as well as this particular interview. But I think the fascinating thing for me was the connection with the Dark Horse Project and Paul Graham's speech. Um, Because Paul Graham's speech was very specific on, yeah, like don't plan it out more so just have like a direction. So instead of having a map, have a compass and focus on making all these short-term iterations based on the opportunities that come and present themselves to you. And I think it it's somewhat, um, it could be contrarian in one ways because everyone seems to tell you you want to have a long-term view, you want to be patient. And this isn't saying you shouldn't have a long-term view and you shouldn't be patient because the long-term view is that you, you know, you kind of, want to make decisions that will help you succeed 10, 20, 30 years out, but you don't want to be so stubborn and narrow-minded into believing that what you set yourself as a goal when you're like 18 is something you should continue to push on and follow um, despite the rise of new data and new facts. And so that's where you want to be the prudent person who um, will actually look at the facts that come up with each opportunity and is able to reassess and iterate so it's an it's a preference for actually making short-term plans you want to have a long-term view in mind but you want to focus on making short-term plans which i think is looked upon quite negatively uh in society because they want people to kind of pick a career and specialize in it and go like yeah you want to do this one thing for the next 10 20 years and then you'll be amazing at it and then people will come to you with other opportunities and i personally have a very negative view on that um and this kind of leads to what I thought was a pretty valuable part of this podcast interview where uh, Epstein talks about the grit research that's pretty popular by um, Angela Duckworth. I personally didn't feel my view is that uh, I didn't read the book, but I watched at least half a dozen uh, interviews because on on this particular topic that Professor Duckworth gives, and I didn't find it quite uh, as thrilling. I didn't think there was anything amazing about it. I thought it was just kind of telling me that, yeah, people who persevere do well. Yeah, okay, that seems very straightforward, but I found it quite limiting um, because it seemed like a very narrow research uh, that specifically looked at the achievement of specific goals. Like It's like saying, yeah, people who have this one particular goal, goal and who per- people who have a tendency to per- be able to persevere and kind of be stubborn and not wanting to give up, like they will do, they'll succeed and they'll do well in this kind of entire field 
it, like for me, there's nothing profound in that. And what I found interesting was how kind of Epstein points at that point pointed that out and talked about how yeah, like it it's only really applicable. Like the research only focuses on the achievement of specific goals, but in the world that we live in in like the world of let's say careers it's a wicked environment where it's not like a specific sports game where this one goal and that that's all you're trying to do like there's so many different factors that are constantly hitting you so many different opportunities so many different kinds of feedback that's hitting you um there's it's not a turn-based thing like you don't even you might not even get it to have your own turn like more things might hit you than you ever have a chance to make a decision and so in that kind of environment which he calls a wicked environment um it might be rather it's it's not important to even like ask the question of whether someone has quit or not. It's not, it's not a black and white thing. And it's rather like Epstein points out that it's more important to actually figure out what, where that person should be, like what they should be doing. Because if they're doing the right thing for themselves in terms of who they are based on the development they've had, then they will be able to actually develop grit in that particular um, subject matter. Which reminds me of the research in flow states and how, yeah, it's it's not that someone has flow or not, like or in terms of like their genetic disposition, whether they can ever achieve flow or not. Everyone can achieve flow states. It's more so what are you doing? Um, and it's just analyzing. Does what you do now give you flow states? No. Okay, then let's move on. But what could give you flow states? What could you, what could you do that'll help you achieve a flow state mentality? Um, well, how could we create an environment that allows that? And I think grit is the exact same thing. It's one of those things where you're not so much focused on whether someone has grit or not. It's more so focused on let's figure out what this person is really great at, what they really should be doing, what they probably really want to do, and put them in that environment. And let's create an environment that allows them to actually be extremely creative and motivated. And you will most likely see them achieve flow state. You'll most likely see them show traits of actually having grit. So it for me, this was a big podcast uh, revelation and just thinking differently about, yeah, like, I think the foundation is really just more, more so, once again, focusing on the individual and helping them introspect, not so much identifying and trying to categorize people and saying, do you have flow state or not? Do you have grit or not? Um, which I find is just, I don't know, I think it's just cheap research, in my opinion, to just kind of try to say people are X, Y, Z. Um, yeah, anyhow. <laughs> um, bit of a rat there, but finally, I think the uh, the interview talked spoke about super fascinating stories uh, with Nintendo and comic books. Um, the Nintendo story is really fascinating, so I just highly recommend you listen to it. Uh, it's near the end of the interview, and it's just like learning about how like you know the guy that helped create Game Boy for Nintendo uh, was this like you know failure failed electrical engineer who didn't do so well in all his exams, and so was you know sent down to like a company a uh, small company in Kyoto that made playing cards which ended up becoming Nintendo and how he was extremely pivotal in like creating the Game Boy and how he created a, a product that was so simple and that um, removed the complexity of games so that it would just be so easy for people to adopt that it actually beat out Sega and Atari um, even though they those competitors created like a color version um of a handheld device gaming console whereas nintendo created this giant brick which uh was just four scales for like gray tones uh, and the graphics weren't even great and it was just kind of showing how technological um competing in technology like graphics etc is a a zero-sum game and it's also very short-lived 
but you want to compete in a completely different arena where you want to create a very simple uh, game, a simple interface, a simple platform for other developers to also help build more games for the Nintendo Game Boy platform, um, and also to build just a very sturdy, simple device. And yeah, I, th- I thought this was a super fascinating story where, yeah, people seem to get, once again, lost in just getting the, the best technology and thinking technology is actually the answer. But in reality, it, re- it rarely is, um, at least for any sustainable advantage, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And the second story is just on the largest predictor of success for comic book creators is um, not the number of hours they do create comic books, but the number of genres they've created. So the more wider the genre of comic books they've created, they're more likely to achieve success on on average um, in their comic book sales, but also they're more likely to have a blockbuster hit with their comic books because they've explored more genres and so they, they just have collected much more data and they are able to kind of do this thing where, uh, you know, they, they can, I guess, con- connect all the different mental models, really. And they'll have this lattice work. You know, it's this Charlie Munger view where why you, one of the reasons why you want to have general knowledge and just constantly be curious so you can create a lattice work of mental models. And that seems to be the case for comic book writers as well. So that's it. That's the, that's the episode today. Uh, I hope this was interesting. Hope this was fun. Um, this was the learning medley episode and happy to be back. Hope this is something you missed in your life and yeah, hope to continuously provide more interesting uh, podcasts, something that you can constantly listen to and learn something new from every day. And yeah, appreciate the support and continue. Um, you know, I, I'd, appreciate, I'd appreciate it. If you can tell your friends all about it and recommend my podcast to them if they need some kind of a daily learnings podcast with similar interests as myself. All right. Take care.